the birthday of Jesus has been turned into anything but the birthday of Jesus. Give your presence to someone that you love. Give yourself, give your time, be fully there with the person. Give you more grateful, more generous, more thoughtful, more personal. How about this part of more? More me. You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want. We are um, in the middle of this series called The Advent Conspiracy. And uh, the conspiracy is not so much a program or a package. Uh, it's, it's really a movement. I haven't been given pre-written sermons to read. Uh, there are no fees that we've been paying. Uh, nobody's requiring us to give to a certain project. And the movement really grows out of just a, a sense of holy discontentment. Discontentment that this, that this thing called Christmas, the birthday of Jesus, has been turned into anything but the birthday of Jesus. And we can scream at the world about forgetting God, but the truth is, a lot of discontentment is the fact that we as Christ followers have turned Christmas into something other than the birthday of Jesus. So what we're trying to do this season is uh, return to the roots to re-enter the story, to find ourselves there in the barn, kneeling next to that manger cradle with our hands on the side of it, peering in and seeing that baby God King who was born so that we could have eternal life, so that your and my sins could be taken away. In this series, we've been going through this outline. We want to worship fully, spend less, Next week we'll talk about what it means to love all, but today we're focusing in on give more. And it really is the heart of the Evan Conspiracy message. Give more what, you might ask. What, what am I supposed to give more of? Well, in the greatest sense, you're to give more of you. I'm to give more of me. Instead of copping out, and it truly is copping out, instead of copping out and buying a pile of presents, give your presence to someone that you love. Give yourself, give your time, be fully there with the person, give you. That's what so many of us are holding back. That's where so many of us are truly Grinch-like. We've stopped giving us. We work too much, we're away from home too much, we're away from the people we love too much, and then when we get to home, we're not really there. You know, our, our kids ask us to play, and we say, you know, not now, kiddos, we can't do that right now. Somebody asks us a question, and we kind of give a, an inaudible grunt as our way of saying, yeah, I heard you, whatever. Our, our spouse wants us to go ahead and pay attention for a moment, but, but we're engaged in television, and, and the remote is, that's why I love this thing, it feels like I'm at home. The remote is ensconced in our hand, we're there, ready to go, and we can't even turn our eyes away long enough to look the person in the face and say, hey, I acknowledge that you're there, I, I actually love you. We're ripping off our family, we're ripping off off our friends, we spend way too much money on gifts for them, but we rob them of our presence. So what do we give more of? We give more of ourselves. Now, before we move into give more, I want to back up the truck a little bit and just talk a little bit about last week and about spending less. 
In doing so, in talking about spending less, I suspect that some of you felt a sense of relief. Maybe for you, the Christmas spending has just become, it's, it's an insanity cycle. And it was nice to finally say, stop, that's it. We're not going any further. We're going to start to ratchet back. It's about time. We're ready to do that. Maybe you even said, great, this is the year that I can pare back the list a little bit, bring it down to a, to a little bit more manageable level. Well, in part, this is true, but it's not the whole story. Because what we're learning is we're going to We're going to spend less so that we can give more. We're going to spend less so that we can give more. So now, instead of standing at the grocery store uh, in front of that kiosk full of cards and grabbing an Outback card and giving it to someone, we're instead going to say, here's what I'd love to do for Christmas. Why don't we go out to dinner together? Why don't we spend some time together enjoying each other and reconnecting instead of just giving the person somebody, something. Give them your spe- yourself. Even if I choose to still give a gift, I'm going to try to give a gift that's meaningful. Something that, that means something between us. Uh, the truth is, I love gift cards and I love giving away gift cards. They're great. If you use them in a way that it says something about the relationship. There are times that I receive a gift card and it's obvious, you know, someone, someone does something out of something that came out of a conversation from six months ago and you think, wow, you remember, that's cool. Or maybe it's something that they know you like or maybe it's just, you know, a, a hint at an inside joke or something. But there's some meaning, some meaning behind the gift. It's not just a gift for a gift's sake. Spend less isn't a, a gift get out of jail free card. This isn't our chance to just say, oh good, now I don't have to give gifts. It's not an excuse to get people off your list who you've been wanting to dump for a while and now you can use your pastor as an excuse. Well, my pastor said, I need to get slimmed down the list, so sorry, <laughs> you didn't make the cut. Um, it's an approach that says, I am going to give, but I'm giving me. I'm giving me. I'm giving presence. I want to be there with you. In some ways, I'm going to be honest, it makes giving tougher. It makes it harder, but it makes it more meaningful, a true expression of love. So here's what the conspiracy against consumerism is about this week. We're going to spend less on meaningless things so that we can give of what matters. I'd like to give you an example of of giving of yourself without necessarily spending a dime. And take a look at the guys over the board here. Every week, these guys, Dwayne Mormon is usually among them. They're back here making sure we have sound, making sure the slides appear, making sure the lights happen. They do all that. One of the guys decided he wanted to give a gift to the rest of the group. He shared it with me last night, and I said, everybody else got to see this too. So go ahead. Let's see this. Crack you up. 
Now, I won't tell you which of them, but Eric didn't spend a dime on that gift. He didn't spend a dime on that gift. But it cost him time, right? It cost him time. It it was something that he thought, hey, we're going to have some fun with this. And I promise you, there are gifts that we could all give each other that we would forget in an instant. They will never forget that. Eric took the time to say, this is what you mean to me. Now, I'm not sure what you guys mean to him, but he said, this is what you mean to me. Can you find a way to do something for someone that's more than just handing them something, but you're really giving of yourself to the other person? Last week as we were closing, and we were talking about this concept of spending less, I asked the question, uh, is it ever okay then to give extravagantly? Is it ever okay to just really absolutely go crazy in giving towards someone else. I want to share a story with you from the Bible that I think is a beautiful example, both of how to be a great giver as well as to be a great receiver. Uh, It's found in several of the Gospels. We're going to look at the account in John, and we're going to be comparing a little bit with the way the story is told in Mark as well. It's found in the book of John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Here's what we read. Six days before Passover, the Passover celebration, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Remember, Martha is Lazarus' sister who's always serving. Um, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary, Lazarus' sister, Martha's sister, took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. And I love this commentary. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. I mean, imagine you're managing Jesus' money, and every once in a while, you're pilfering some. This guy does not have great motives, okay? Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. I want to take some time to break down this story and, and the fact that the story is a little bit confusing. I mean, you read this story. If you're, just, if you're just reading through the Bible, you're trying to imagine being at a party and some single woman walks up to a single guy and takes out a bottle of perfume and pours it all over him and, and then starts wiping the perfume with her hair. You're going, uh, I, I don't get it. This, this story is not making a lot of sense. So what we want to try to do is make some sense to the story and compare it a bit with another passage so that we get the full sense of what was going on here and what it was that Mary was trying to give. So let's just begin first with the context. Where does this story happen within the context of Scripture, within the stories happening all around it? 
In the book of John, it happens in John chapter 12. I don't know if you can remember, you know, from, from your Bible, what happened in John chapter 11. Just one chapter before, the entire chapter is devoted to the death of Lazarus and to Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is fresh on Mary's mind. Now, we, my dad used to tease, he had a term, he'd say it was a major miracle. It was like, you know, there were miracles, but then there's, there's a major miracle. This is a biggie miracle. This one, this one's huge. I would put raising your brother from the dead in the con- category of major miracle. That's, a, that's, a, that's about as big a miracle as you can possibly have. Can you imagine being at the funeral of someone you love and someone walks up and they say, get out of your casket? And they do. I mean, you're not going to forget that, are you? That is going to be pressed in your minds for the rest of your days. And I'm sure that in the moments that followed that event, Mary just kept thinking, what can I do to show this man I love him? What can I do to show the full extent of how much I love Jesus? Now, right after the story in John chapter 12, uh, it says the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover to visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. So I never really thought about this before this way, but this, this nard, this expensive perfume, this, this isn't something that you just it went away. This, the essence stayed with you. The fragrance stayed with you. And so here he is walking into Jerusalem, and the scent is still pouring off of him as people are laying palm branches on the ground. It's the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. This is where... This anointing happens within the context of the story in the book of John. Now, Mark tells the story, too, and he gives us some additional pieces. In Mark chapter 13, just before the story, Jesus spends a whole chapter, a whole chapter, talking about the fact that he's about to die. This, too, is on the disciples' minds. They've heard these words. They don't want him to die. This is not the way they want things to end up. They want him to live. They want him to be a triumphant king. And now Mary comes and starts to anoint him with nard, which was the the fragrance used to anoint a dead body. They had smelled this smell before. They smelled this smell at funerals. They had smelled this fragrance in the air. And you've got to wonder if the disciples aren't being reminded of the words, I'm about to die, and now they smell funeral in the air. That's what's going on for the disciples at this point. And, and then at the other side of the story, as the story ends in Mark, this is what the verse says, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. He was, they were delighted that he had heard why he had come. And they promised to give him money, so he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas leaves the meal. We could have sold that money and given it to the poor. We could have helped. We could have fed people. I mean, come on. He leaves that meal, goes and talks to the priest and said, I am willing to do what it takes to hand this man over to you. Do you think he was really sincere about helping the poor? Here's what Judas wanted to do. He wanted to sell that nard so that the money would end up in the treasury so he could pilfer a little bit more. I've got to wonder in part if Judas wasn't a little bit irritated in the whole situation. Because Jesus had called him, or God, Jesus had called him out publicly. Publicly had said, the poor will always be with you. Um, stop scolding Mary. 
got to wonder what was going through his mind. That just, that just sets some of the, some of what's going on in terms of the context. How about this one? How about the culture? What's going on in the culture that helps us to understand the story a little bit better? So much of this story is really, I believe it's lost on us. We don't have alabaster jars of nard in our house. Uh, Anybody got one? I'm curious. I'd love to see it. Okay, I I didn't figure. Uh, We don't often see single women at parties anointing single men with nard. It just doesn't happen. Uh, we, We can't imagine this being anything but scandalous. And guess what? It was scandalous back then too. There is a culture challenge going on here. We're trying to imagine a story 2,000 years old and trying to get a grasp on it. Now, here's the thing, though. You don't have to go back 2,000 years in order to have a culture challenge. You can go back just, just one generation and have a culture challenge. Let me give you an example of one that for us 40 years ago, for our church, 40 years ago. Here's the difference. When I came... Um, to the church in 1995, and don't worry, I'm doing the math. That's not 40 years ago. When I came to church in 1995, we started talking about doing outreach and getting involved in reaching people for Christ. And there was a lady, she was so excited to hear that. She was, she was into outreach. She said, I got this great idea. said, you know, back in the day, we used to have a bus. And we'd take the bus, and we'd go park on a street corner. And I had an accordion. And, and I'd play the accordion. I'd play the accordion. And kids would start coming walking up. And they'd see me playing the accordion. I'd say, hey, get on the bus. We're going to church. Let's, let's go to church. We'll, we'll get on church. We'll go. Now, this was an effective way of reaching kids. I'm not kidding. Abe Ramos from our own church lived in Southside Chicago. A church from Indiana brought the bus over. He got on the bus, went over to Indiana. The first thing they did to him was cut his hair off and baptize him, believe it or not. And after a while, he did actually become a believer through this ministry. His mother didn't have a clue where he was. Chicago to Indiana that day. So let's just, let's bring this 40 years later. We're sitting over Syrmi. And you know, John, Jeff, and Steve, they're, they're trying to come up with great new ideas. And one of them says, hey, I got an idea. I heard about a church. Uh, let's buy a bus. And we'll park it on the corner. And, you know, John, John, and, John and Steve, they're kind, they're kind of musically talented. So John can play his accordion and, and Steve can play his harmonica. And, and Jeff doesn't have any musical talent. But, but he can hand out candy. And so we'll have Jeff handing out candy. Hey, kids. He hasn't kid. Why don't you come to church? Come on, come on. Get on the bus. Go on. Just step up. Come on. Get on the bus. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Folks, that's just 40 years. We've gone from, yay, I get to go to church, to stranger, stranger, I'm in trouble. This is a big scary guy. This church is bad news. 40 years. We're trying to understand stories that are 2,000 years old. And not only that, we have the challenge of the East versus West competition going on. And I'm not talking about New York versus California. I'm talking about a Western civilization mindset versus an Eastern civilization mindset. And the two are worlds apart. And there are things going on in this story that very much would be understood by an Eastern mindset. But we struggle with it as Westerners. All of this is happening Now, here's what's cool about the story, whether it's told by Mark or told by John. We may never understand all the nitpicky details going on there, but Jesus, as well as the writers, do a great job telling us what we need to understand. They say, for example, you know, Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you. He makes it clear. This is the point of the story. John makes it really clear as, as, as well as Mark. Judas is a problem. He's the bad guy in the story. You don't have to guess who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So even though we may not understand every piece of culture, we get the big picture of the story. 
Let me talk a little bit about contrasts as well. If you read the story in Mark and then you read it in John, there's some, there are some differences. There are some subtle differences. And you may be wondering what's going on. Are these the same story or are they two different stories? I think what we have is the same story, but two different sets of eyes seeing it and two different sets of, of minds and hearts writing it for a different purpose. So let's just do an example today. Five of you that really like the cold, we're going to put you out on the curb, and a race car is going to go zooming by. Here's what would happen. Tell us about the experience. One person would say, I saw a red car. Another person would say, I saw a Porsche. Another person would say, I saw a convertible. Another person would say, all I saw was headlights. Another person would say, all I saw was taillights. Do we have five different stories? No, we have one story, don't we? Five different perspectives. Five different ways of seeing what's going on. That's what's going on in the difference between the way John tells the story and the way Mark tells the story. Same event, but being seen through different eyes. You know, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. In other words, I'm the teacher's pet. It was his way of saying, I'm the one he loves. You can hear the intensity when he's telling the story, when he says, Judas was a bad guy. He was a bad guy. Don't trust Judas. He's the bad guy in the story. You can hear some of their agenda pouring out in a positive way, their agenda pouring out as they tell the story. There are contrasts going on. So what are some of the contrasts we see? They all saw the same thing. But one talks about anointing Jesus' head. The other talks about anointing Jesus' feet. You say, okay, which one is it? Yes, 12 ounces of ointment, uh, you don't have to just put that in one place. It was started on his head, and his feet were given ointment as well. Luke talks about a jar of expensive perfume. Mar- I'm sorry, John does. Mark talks about a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. You get the details of the jar. Mark says she broke the jar. John only says... She poured it out. We get that extra detail of the breaking, which, by the way, what's about to happen? Jesus' life is about to be broken for us. He gives the picture of the breaking as well as the breaking of an expensive jar. I mean, if you were about to give something expensive, wouldn't you like to at least save the container? She doesn't even get to save the container. She breaks it and spills it out in love for Jesus. One of the great contrasts in John, he says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. In Mark, you get this little extra detail. A little bit more of the conversation is shared. He says, you will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want. I love what he says, basically. Would you stop trying to spend her money? You care so much about the poor, you step up and take care of the poor. But stop telling Mary she's got to be the one to take care of the poor. You take care of the poor. I mean, I love the fact that even in that, he confronts their motive and says, don't give me all this you care about the poor business. What you really care about is getting your hands on the money, Judas. He goes deeper. He lets them know what's really going on. How about the conclusions? What do we see just as the conclusions of this story? I think we really learn both how to be a good receiver as well as how to be a good giver. Jesus received this gift. He just received it with gratitude. I don't know if you've ever been given an extravagant gift. And by extravagant, I mean something you really felt you didn't deserve. It was expensive. It was out there. 
You know what the toughest thing to do is when you receive an extravagant gift? It's tough to just say, thank you. It's really hard. We say things like, oh, you shouldn't have, or oh, I wish you'd have let me know. I just, oh, I can't believe you did this. I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I mean, I love you. Thank you, but it's too much. Let's, let's, let's sell it and use it for something else instead of just saying, thank you. Thank you. Jesus was great at just receiving the gift for what it was. How about, how about um, Mary as a giver? What do we learn about Mary as a gifter? Well, I think what we learn, it really comes down to these words, give more. She taught us what it means to give more and how every one of us can give more. What does it look like? First of all, she gave more freely. She gave more freely. I want you to think about this for a moment. She didn't care who saw or what they thought when she did this. She didn't care who was in the room. She didn't care. I'll bet that Judas had made snide comments before. And when Judas was in the room, Mary went, oh, maybe I should wait until Judas sleeps. No! She just did this freely. She wasn't sitting there thinking about what other people... In her mind, in this room, it was Jesus and her, and that's it. And she gave freely. Too often with our gift giving, part of the reason it becomes complicated is because we want to make sure everybody gets exactly the same amount, the exact same number, the exact same amount spent, all this stuff, instead of just saying, I'm going to give freely. This isn't about looking around to see who's going to think about what I'm doing. This is about me giving freely to you. She gave freely. That's what more means. She also gave more gratefully. And we need to give more gratefully. Where did her giving come from? It wasn't an obligation. Oh, man, it's Christmas. Jesus is here. I should give him a present. It's his birthday. Uh, here, Jesus. That's not... No, no. This wasn't an obligatory gift. By the way, it wasn't Christmas yet. It happened a few years later. But anyway, then they just called it Jesus' birthday. Um, she was giving out of gratitude for what happened in chapter 11. She couldn't... She just couldn't let it go. Her brother was alive because of this man. She couldn't let it go. She gave gratefully. She also gave more generously. Now, I know we talked about spend less, and you're like, okay, wait a second. You talk about spend less. Now you're telling me I need to give more generously. Well, you can't get around the fact that in the passage it said this gift was the equivalent of a year's wage. A year's wage. I mean, I don't know what you make a year. Uh, given what you make, a year's wage may mean you could buy a ping pong table, a nice car, or maybe even a modest house. With a year's wage, one year's wage, and she, she generously, generously gave it to Jesus. In part, we need to learn how to be more generous in our giving. Go even further, I think she teaches us to be more reckless in our giving. To be more reckless. The, the bottle was broken. It was broken. She, she couldn't save the bottle for later. Everything, everything was spilled out. It was all spent on that moment. Some of us, the only gift we'll give, we give practical gifts. We give gifts that can be used over and over. This was the most impractical gift possible. I'm going to take this expensive ointment and I'm just going to pour it on you. I'm just going to pour it on you, Jesus. She gave recklessly. You know, another thing she teaches us is to give more thoughtfully. We need to be more thoughtful about what we give and the way we give it. Part of this story that really gets lost on Eastern minds 
is the fact that what she did at some point is put this perfume on Jesus' feet. And then she got down on the ground and she started wiping her hair with the perfume. I don't know about you, but that would be one awkward Christmas gift. I'd just be sitting there going, I really don't know what to do with this. But what Mary was saying was incredible. I mean, just, just think about this for a moment. Watch it, okay? If you're getting down, and I have short hair, unfortunately, if you're getting down to wipe your hair on someone's feet, what does this look like? Is there anything about this that looks proud? Is there anything about this that looks like I'm the one in charge of the situation? This was an ultimate expression of devotion to get down on the ground. I don't, it doesn't matter if it's Eastern or Western mindset. When you get down at someone's feet, you're expressing devotion. You're expressing humility. She gave thoughtfully. She gave in a way that said, I am totally devoted to you. I totally love you. I'm humble in your presence. She also gave more personally. And she gave what would truly honor Jesus. She knew this would honor Jesus. Can you give more personally so you give the thing that will truly honor that person? Not just going to big lots and buying 20 of them, wrapping them up and going, boom, 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 here you all go. But instead, really thinking, how can I make this personal? So, more freely, she teaches us to be more grateful, more generous, more thoughtful, more personal. How about this part of more? More me. More me. It wasn't all about the nard. It wasn't all about the alabaster uh, container. She was saying in that moment, Jesus, I, I give me you. I give me you. In our giving, can we go beyond just giving someone a gift to say, I'm giving myself to you. We want to be challenged to, to give more and to do it in a way that we might not think about at Christmas. One of the things that, that other churches are doing in the conspiracy is um, getting involved in, in a project, something, a conspiracy project, something that says, uh, you know, we're, we're not just going to spend on us. We realize that $450 billion bucks a year is spent on Christmas, and the world doesn't have much. And so one of the things we're going to do is try to call attention to some of the world's need, call our attention to the world's need, and not just to the things that we want. So I was really praying about what to do. I knew that we could get involved in, you know, digging one of these wells or doing something like that. And it was about that time that Nora McNamara, missionary to Benin, Africa, who happens to be here today, which is hilarious. I picked her up and it was like 27 degrees outside and she had just come from 100 degree Africa. She's loving this. It's nice and cool. She thinks it's great. But she wrote to me and said, you know, I've got a situation. I've got, I've got a friend, a coworker. She says uh, she's a woman. She's godly widow. And she started to explain her situation and basically the fact that she needs a house. I want to just read a little bit of this to you. Let me show you the, the, the picture of, of, of Rachel and her, and her daughter as well. It says, the woman on the left, Rachel, wanted to be a teacher but had to quit grade school when she fled her home to avoid being forced to marry an older man. She later married, had kids, and was widowed. This is the part that gets tough. She doesn't have the right to the small lot or the house that was her husband's because the way inheritance works here takes it away from here. The nephews, 
that do have the right to the house, and she says who she raised when their mother deserted them, are making it very difficult for her to stay there. They're, they're forcing her out, and they have the right to do it. So here's, you know, the thing that's incredible about this story, this is very much like the situation in the Bible that a woman would have no legal rights to an inheritance. This is why Jesus talks so much about taking care of the widows and the orphans. Because when a woman was widowed, she had no legal rights. She had no possessions. She had nothing. And that's the situation this woman and her daughter find herself in. She said she has saved her money and had some others help. So she's been able to buy a small lot. But she doesn't have the $5,000 needed to build a house. And here's what she wants. I mean, you think about this. A house with two bedrooms and a living room. It's her, her daughter, and all the children they have among them. They want two rooms and a living room in between. The kitchen and bathroom she's hoping for are separate, made of mud bricks and a straw roof. Now here you were trying to figure out whether you're going to get shake shingles or what, you know, straw roof on the kitchen. $5,000. To be sure that this woman can never have her house taken away from her again. $5,000. I said, Nora, what happens if we raise more than $5,000? She said, well, another thousand she can have electricity. I'm like, you mean she's not even asking for electricity? She just wants walls and a roof. That's it. Think about all the extras you put in as you were thinking about building your house or as you were shopping for your house. I'm sure one of your extras wasn't, you know, electricity would be nice. Well, we could do without. We have the chance to change a person's life completely and her daughter. And I'm just thinking I'd be more than willing to say I don't want any gifts this year and I'll give everything of that over to help this woman so that she can have a place to live. The cool part about the situation, Nora's going back in January, she can be the one to completely manage the building of the house. So we're not just handing this off to someone anonymous and wondering what happened. She can be the one to manage it happening. And I just want to encourage you, there are a lot of different things we can do to give more, to get, to get beyond thinking of what are we going to do for ourselves, what do I need, what do I want, instead helping someone who we will never meet. We'll meet her in heaven, that's it. We're not, we're not going to be able to go visit her house, we're not going to be able to have her cook us a chicken dinner, nothing like that. We'll just know that someone is living under a roof that cannot be taken away from her. What can we do? Maybe it's as simple as encouraging kids, give them all an envelope and say, here's what we're going to do. This Christmas... You're going to give a gift to Jesus. We're all going to give a gift to Jesus. Put it under the tree, and we'll make sure that that ends up ultimately to be a part of this gift. Maybe, this is a tough one. Maybe you say there's some gift you've been waiting for, and it's your favorite gift. And you're going to talk to whoever gave it to you, and you say, this is what I need to do. I really need to do this. I'm taking this gift, and I'm returning it. It's something I really want, and it's something I'm thrilled you gave me but I want to take the money from it and give it to someone who needs it way more than I need an X, whatever your X is. There are so many things we could do. So many, what, here's what we're not doing. We're not just taking our offering and Xing out Southfield and writing Africa Project. We're not just saying, I'm going to buy all my normal gifts and do this too. This is a way of saying, Jesus, I am really going to give over and above to you to someone, to me, who is nameless and faceless, someone who I won't be able to touch, or I know. 
And in doing that, I know what the Bible says. I'm really giving it to you. I'm giving it to you. It's a beautiful song that was written years ago. I will not sing it, but it tells the story of what we just read. It said, One day a plain village woman, uh, driven by love for her Lord, recklessly poured out a valuable essence, disregarding the scorn. And once it was broken and spilled out, a fragrance filled all the room. Like a prisoner released from his shackles, like a spirit set free from the tomb. Broken and spilled out just for love of you, Jesus. My most precious treasure lavished on you. Broken and spilled out and poured at your feet. In sweet abandon, let me be spilled out and used up for you. That's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about just giving some money to something. We're saying, Jesus, I give you me. All of me. I give you me. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because honestly, this consumer society in which we live always has us screaming about the more we want or the more we want for someone that's close to us. But it doesn't look beyond us to people who need something that that we'll never see, we'll never touch. We don't know. We, we like to help our own. We like to help the people around us. And you're saying to us, now, when you help someone you don't know, you're helping me. You're doing this in my name. And God, I pray that you will, you will break us to be people that give more, that really give more. Not just give more money, but we give ourselves. We give ourselves to each other. We give ourselves to you because that's what you're calling for from us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You filled out your card at the beginning of our time talking. I'd like you to take it again on the back side. There's, there's just an open box today. Because today I really want you to decide what you need to do. Sometimes we, we put four or five suggestions on there and you check them off. Today we're just saying there's some way God moved you today. And, and I'd like you to go ahead and write down whatever that commitment is that you want to make to him today. Maybe it's something as simple as I'm going to give more. I'm going to give me Maybe it's, uh, I'm going to stop doing the grunting and actually pay attention when someone talks. Maybe it's, uh, I'm, going, I'm going to release some of what I have to make sure that someone that doesn't have has. Write something down. We're just going to spend a minute here in silence. It's you and God in the quiet. Write down a commitment to him right now. On the front of your folder today, uh, we're talking about what our next series is going to be. In January, uh, January is always that time to kind of go, okay, what do I need to do in the new year? What's the approach I need to take? What needs to change? John Ortberg wrote a great book a couple years ago called The Me I Want to Be. And we're going to take some time on Sunday morning as well as in a mini session of journey groups, a four-week session of journey groups to really break down who it is, who's, who's the me you want to be, but more importantly, who's the me God wants you to be. And how do we get there? It's one thing for us to just stand here and say, you should do this, you should do that, you should do the other thing. That's all nice. But what do I do? How do I change? How does God change me? That's what we're going to be talking about uh, during, that, during those four weeks. So uh, you can see on here, for example, the, the last section talks about the five different places groups will meet. I encourage you to sign up for one of the groups. It's four weeks. I mean, that's not a lot. Some of you, for the other groups, you said ten weeks. That's a long time. Four weeks, just a mini session to be able to get together with some other people and study and learn more about how to become 
the person God wants you to be. So we're actually starting registrations today. There's a table out in the hallway. You can sign up there. You'll also be able to sign up on the website. We want to encourage you as you start. I know December isn't even done, and we're already talking January. But that's okay. Some of you need that relief of realizing, yes, there's, there's something beyond 2010. 2011 is coming. And uh, we hope that you'll participate in that. Make sure you take the time to really read it through and figure out how you will be a part of the next series we're going to be doing together. We are going to continue into uh, um, some more time in worship and a moment of reflection that we we share together uh, weekly, we call communion. And uh, this is a time where we uh, celebrate what Jesus did for every person. Every person who um, wants to get to God but knows that they can't do it on their own merit can only come through one place, and it's Jesus. He's the only fitting Savior to be able to bring us um, who we are, from who we are to um, having a rightful place in God's perfect family and in His perfect home called heaven. As we celebrate communion today, I'd like to challenge each of us to have a picture in our mind of a woman with a really sweet-looking alabaster jar and just breaking it out of just a reckless love for a person and, and, and spilling that perfume out and choosing Jesus specifically. I don't know about you, but the, the kind of feeling that you get from from just having that kind of extravagant love for somebody is it's really exhilarating it's something that you don't forget the rest of your life when you have the opportunity to just blow somebody away with uh, what you really want to give them it's kind of action that people might even ask you later you know years later you talk about the time where the one shot you had to have something like this and you and you and you did what you did they say wow you regret that? You go, no, <laughs> no, no, not really. That was the statement I wanted to make. I want to challenge us to have that in our mind as we take communion today because I believe that that same exhilarating feeling was the feeling in God's heart when He gave us the gift of His only Son. More than we ever deserved, more than we could have hoped for or expected. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare even his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? That statement had been made. In 1 John chapter 3, the words are, How great the manner of love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. We are the recipient of that kind of love and grace. The servers will come forward now and distribute communion. Spend a moment with God. Take them when you're ready. Enjoy the moment.
grateful people look to you in the the face of what you've given and how freely you do it we want to say thank you because there's not much else for us to do but to receive it and we would also like you to teach us how to be givers like you to be so free and so extravagant so creative and so right on time with how we love the people in our lives the strangers and the friends. Thank you for your example. Help us to give more for the thrill and the joy and the chance to be like you. We pray in your name. Amen. Grateful people, you are loved. Have a great week.